Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Did you know that you can claim CME credit for many of the TMA Practice Well podcasts? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's www.texmed.org forward slash C-M-E-T-O-G-O to register for your podcast and follow the instructions to claim CME. Policies and Standards of the Texas Medical Association, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, and the American Medical Association require that speakers and planners for continuing medical education activities disclose any relevant financial relationship they may have with commercial entities whose products, devices, or services may be discussed in the content of the CME activity. The planners and speakers of this program have nothing to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this podcast should not be used or referred to as a primary legal source and does not replace the advice of your health care attorney. And welcome to the Texas Medical Association's Practice Well podcast on trauma-informed care. My name is Deanna Curitan with TMA Public Health, and I'm joined by today's guests, Dr. Valerie Smith and Dr. Joyce Mock. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, before we get started, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourselves, Dr. Smith, um, your specialty and what area of Texas you're in? Sure. I am a pediatrician in Tyler, Texas. I work for a nonprofit community-based healthcare clinic, and um, our practice focuses on providing integrated behavioral health and caring for children in foster care. Wonderful. And how about you, Dr. Mock? Yes. Hi. I'm a neurodevelopmental pediatrician, and I'm located in Fort Worth, Texas. I have recently partially retired, and I am teaching public health advocacy at a local college, and I'm doing a number of other projects. Wonderful. You're very involved for saying you're partially retired. I don't consider that. <laughs> okay. Well, um, again, thank you. And so we're the topic of today's discussion is trauma-informed care, which can be a little bit, I think, intimidating for some physicians about how they go about it and just not really knowing what it is truly. I think the intent for the, today's conversation is just for it to be a broad overview, for it to be an introduction, and that from here we'll start a journey for physicians to look for opportunities of how it can be incorporated. Do you have anything to add, Dr. Smith? So I have the privilege of serving as co-chair of the Texas Medical Association 
Subcommittee on Behavioral Health with Dr. Les Seacrest, and Dr. Mock serves on that committee with me as well. And it is our hope that as we introduce physicians to trauma-informed care, that over the next few years, we'll be able to really have opportunities to take a deeper dive, whether that's through ongoing learning activities via the internet or through workshops at TexMed or other TMA conferences, so that physicians who hear a little bit today and are interested will have the opportunity to learn more about real practice implementation as we move forward. Thank you. And how about you, Dr. Mock? Yes, just to clarify, for the purposes of this discussion, trauma is not what is often thought of as trauma. We're not talking about bodily injury per se or car accidents or things like that. What we're really talking about is complex trauma that can influence the development and long-term health of children who experience it. It's a little bit different than having one traumatic event occur in your life as an adult. We're talking about young children who've had repeated traumatic events, have been exposed to violence, and a number of other things that have been shown over time to have profound influence on the trajectory of their whole lives. Thank you, Dr. Moth, for that elaboration. Um, I think you pointed out one thing, um, and you mentioned, you know, children, and I think it's important for us to note that trauma-informed care doesn't just have to be applied for to just children. That is your area of expertise, um, but we're hoping that specialties, all types of specialties, will be able to gain something from this, right? Yes, absolutely. As I mentioned, we're talking about uh, events that happened in childhood, but really do have a profound effect on the trajectory of someone's life. We first started studying this back in the late 80s and 90s and looked at adverse childhood experiences and recognized that the more adverse childhood experiences an individual has, the more likely they are to have some chronic illnesses in adulthood, mental health issues, and likely to have an early death compared to the rest of the population. I think Joyce just did an excellent job of of outlining what those adverse childhood experiences the impact they can have carrying into adulthood. And in addition to that initial research on average childhood experiences, we now have actually a whole host of studies regarding how trauma can affect both um, the brain and the body. And so it's really important, I think, for physicians who want to practice evidence-based medicine to understand that we do have a strong evidence base for the impacts of trauma on, um, on physiology. That includes everything from chronic activation of the neuroendocrine system to actual changes in the brain architecture, such as um, atrophy of the prefrontal cortex uh, and the the hippocampus, which are both areas that help moderate self-control and uh, moderate executive functioning, as well as a hypertrophy or an overgrowth of the amygdala, which is where many of those fight or flight type instincts exist. Um, Chronic trauma can also lead to a large number of physiologic, physical manifestations, most notably uh, chronic immune system suppression. And so patients who've experienced significant uh, traumatic experiences throughout their childhood may be more at risk for recurrent infections and, and immune system dysfunction. I think you have both done a really great job at explaining and describing what trauma is. Um, the physical aspect of it. And that was actually one of the first things I wanted to introduce us with, you know, to begin this conversation is what is trauma? So that's that part of it. But then how do you describe the actual approach of trauma-informed care that follows? Let's start with you, Dr. Mock. Right. 
I think that the most important thing is really a change in mindset for doctors in their practice. I've heard it stated, and I love this, is to go from thinking about what is wrong with you to change your mindset to what happened to you. And thinking that way, when you look at a patient who is exhibiting a problem, who is not responding to treatment the way you'd expect them to, who is perhaps being labeled as non-compliant or not coming to appointments, think about what possible causes that there are and explore them with them. Thank you. Do you have anything to add, Dr. Smith? Yes, I um, I love that shift that Joyce described as from what happened from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. I often think of trauma-informed care as a, a new lens to put on um, as we're seeing a patient that helps us consider that a significant number of the patients that we're seeing likely have had trauma. We know that, that traumatic experiences both in childhood and adulthood are very common in our country um, and really throughout the world. And that when we are able to, to put that lens on uh, trauma-informed care allows us to identify barriers that we might have assumed were the patient's kind of responsibility or their fault in the past and allows us to understand how those behaviors are happening and how where those barriers are, how we can help address them rather than just blaming somebody for them. You pointed out something that I caught on to was talking about these barriers. And so would you talk about, I guess, how this trauma and trauma-informed care and how it relates to some external barriers, does it relate to things such as social determinants of health? Yes, it relates very closely, and those features of early trauma and social determinants of health often coexist in the same families and are intertwined. It can be very difficult to sort out which of these issues is going on because you really see the end result in the way the family is responding. Absolutely, they're related to social determinants of health. I want to mention a couple of things that are associated with early adverse childhood experiences. We're talking about things that the child, like the child themselves being abused, observing domestic violence, having a parent who is incarcerated, being neglected, having a parent with significant mental health issues, or a parent with significant substance abuse issues. All of those things are adverse childhood experiences. Social determinants health really are things like problems with financial security, difficulties with transition, living in an unsafe neighborhood, problems with stability in housing, things like that. So they often go together. And I think the other thing to be aware of is that they're cumulative, one on top of the other. Um, we're talking about issues that are multi-generational, in fact, can even be inherited really directly by DNA, not just by the environment. These changes are so significant that Dr. Ta Smith talked about changes in brain architecture also induce changes right in our genetic makeup. Thank you, Dr. Mock. How about you, Dr. Smith? Dr. Mock did an excellent job of overviewing those adverse childhood experiences. And, and I often, when I think about the role that social determinants of health can play in trauma and the need for trauma-informed care, I think about um, adverse childhood environments. So as she mentioned, they, those can include things like poverty, living in high crime areas, can also include kind of pervasive experiences such as racism and chronic poverty, 
um, as well as um, for children, for some children living in an unstable environment. So for, for children who are refugees who have come from a country where they were dealing with war, um, they might not have witnessed actual acts of violence, which would be considered those adverse childhood experiences, but the environment in living in living in an environment like that, the, that cumulative experience of the stress and trauma of all of your adult caretakers undergoing that during your childhood absolutely can contribute to that kind of chronic trauma that Joyce was mentioning. Thank you, Dr. Smith. You guys have both done a really good job of giving a description of all these variety of ways that children can be exposed to trauma, that it's not just these one things or concrete things. They're quite fluid representations, right? Experiences. So following from that, I think the next question is, I'm a physician, you know, just example. I want to get started. I'm interested in trauma-informed care. Like, where do I get started? Do I get certified? What do I read? You know, how do I get, what's your examples? How do you incorporate trauma-informed care? So there are a wide variety of training opportunities available, many through specialty societies, for example, the American Academy of Pediatrics um, and the Texas Pediatric Society here in our state uh, regularly conduct trauma-informed care trainings for for pediatricians and their members. Um, but there are also trainings that are available for family practice physicians as well as OB-GYNs. Um, there's a really great resource that I like to send people to if they're just kind of dipping their toe in, which is the National Childhood Traumatic Stress Network. They have a host of everything from one pagers, if you just want to read and, and say, okay, do I understand the definitions of these concepts, to full CME courses that you can take um, to, to learn more deeply about and become actually certified in trauma-informed care. I would say that I would add, though, and I'm curious to see whether Joyce agrees with me or not, I don't know that having a certification is a particularly important part of this. There are a lot of, of people in the realm of trauma-informed care training who think they've got the one way to do it. Um, and for me, again, as we talked before, it's not a prescriptive checklist of things you have to do. It's a perspective and it's a lens that you take where you're considering that everyone in front of you may have experienced trauma and that that may change or impact their behaviors. And so how can you meet them where they are in order to help them reach their health goals? Absolutely agree, Dr. Smith. I think there's multiple places that you can learn. And really, there's an increasing literature in this field that is very, very well done and interesting. Lots of books um, to read. Some whole communities have made commitments to becoming trauma-informed. A certificate is not helpful and doesn't add to your expertise at all. I think it's a matter of learning some more and, again, changing the lens of your, your uh, lens. I agree with that. I think it's also that you as a physician are leading a team. You are almost invariably leading a team or other providers in your example, and how you approach things is going to influence how your staff does as well. Think sometimes of how do we handle a child or family that's always late for appointments or something like that. A lot of time practices will just they won't see the child or they will deliver some punitiveness to them for being late. And it's not without necessarily exploring and understand what's behind that. Perhaps it's a family that's coming on two or three buses with a very wild child with them. And, you know, things like that. I think looking at it that way is a whole different way to see things. Very good. Let's hear some real life examples. Dr. Smith, how do you do things in your office? You know, what's a typical day? 
So I, as much as I said, there's not a checklist. I do have kind of a framework that I like to use when I'm talking to both my own staff and other clinics about implementing trauma-informed care, and that is thinking about three Ps. So those three Ps are physical space, policies and procedures, and people. So what does physical space mean? Physical space means taking a look around your hospital, your clinic, and recognizing where there might be things that are triggers for uh, patients who have experienced trauma. So when we did this in my own clinic, for example, we actually had some kind of secret shopper patients or um, some patients go through our clinic and then we interviewed them afterwards and asked them about their experiences. And one of the things that came to light was that young children were intimidated because our the door to our clinic was solid and they couldn't see what was happening on the other side. And they knew they were coming to the doctor and it was they were kind of scared and antsy about that anyways. Um, and so one of the things that we did is we replaced our solid front door with a, a door with glass panels so that patients could see as they were approaching what was on the other side of that door, right? So it was less intimidating to them. The policies and procedures piece, Joyce gave an excellent example of earlier about the family who's maybe running late or maybe even habitually late. Um, and many clinics will have a, you know, if you're 15 minutes late, you lose your slot and you have to reschedule appointments. And while I completely understand the need for efficiency, one of the things that we've been able to do is just kind of flip that script in our office and we will talk to the family and say, we understand that, that something held you up. We have other patients who are here at their times, but if you can wait, we'll fit you in, you know, in 30 minutes or we'll fit you in after the next patient or that, that type of thing. So recognizing that those barriers that make a patient late are often for families out of their control. Those policies can include things like no-show rates and, and sending, you know, discharging patients for no-showing. We used to do that at my clinic. If you no-showed three times, you were dismissed. Now, if you no-show twice, you actually refer to the social worker who follows up to help identify are there barriers there? Are there things happening that are keeping you from, from making those appointments? Are there ways that we can help? Can we help enroll you in Medicaid transportation, for example, to help allow you to get here? Um, and then the people is probably my favorite and the most important just because as a physician and a pediatrician, I went into this work because I want to make a difference in the lives of people and I, I love interacting with people. But that people... Um, obviously means the interaction you have with patients, but also your entire staff. So one of the things that's been really critical for our clinic and team, and I know other clinics, has been training the whole staff on concepts around trauma-informed care and helping them identify places that they could implement small little tweaks in their day that would help provide trauma-informed care. So for my med medical assistants, that includes giving patients as many choices as possible. Do you, which finger do you want poked for this blood test? Or do you want me to put this shot in your right arm or your left arm? Or would you rather um, be sitting down or laying down for this particular procedure if that's if that's an option, those types of things. And then the other one that we has been really helpful for, I think just our entire clinic, since we're a pediatric clinic, is teaching our staff how to model positive behaviors and positive interactions between children and adults. For parents, who, so many of our parents have experienced trauma, and we really as pediatricians want to stop that cycle, right? And so one of the ways that we can do that is help model those great serve and return and positive interactions for parents so that they see how good interactions can happen with children and caregivers. Dr. Smith, you gave a really good example. One thing that I picked up on was, in my own words, is establishing a sense of autonomy. 
for your patients and, you know, whether it's child giving them choice and the parent giving them choice, right? I think that's one of those things that can get understated or underappreciated when we're dealing with someone who might or, you know, might not, we don't know that they've gone through trauma. And so establishing that level of autonomy coming into a place they might not be comfortable with, I think is probably really key. Dr. Mock, do you have anything you want to add on? The three Ps are a great place to start. It's also important is treating families with respect, knowing that we don't understand everything that goes on in their lives. I think it's tremendously important for us to treat them with respect. We, um, too, in our practice, have done things in the environment to make it friendly for families and make it easy for them to indicate when they don't understand. I think it's also making sure that when you're talking with a family that we share potential problem solving. So, you know, we may see the biggest problem is X when, when we look at the chart or look at the patient and we say, okay, we've got to go after this, but it really may not be meaningful to that family. And so trying to prioritize things to work with the family directly so that they're a big part of your treatment as well. Thank you. Um, Dr. Smith, did you want to respond or anything else? I think when you were discussing earlier patient autonomy, that really is a really critical portion to our perspective when we're thinking about trauma-informed care. And as as Joyce was just talking, it made me think about how really trauma-informed care is kind of the full embodiment embodiment of a patient-centered medical home. We use that term a lot in medicine, and there's been a ton of work and research around thinking about how we can uh, better serve patients and meet them where they are. And and that really is kind of the crux of trauma-informed care. And so um, it it really allows us a perspective or a framework to put into action that piece of how do we create a clinic or a hospital system that meets the needs of our patients first um, and really prioritizes their Comfort, and when I mean when I say comfort, I don't necessarily mean um, like creature comforts, right? That we think about sometimes. I really mean their because uh, I've lost a like what word? Do you have my word? I'm not sure. I think one of the things that I do is make it our business, make our business as predictable as possible, and also indicate at the very first visit that I'm going to ask you about your past. I'm going to ask you about things that may have happened. I'm going to ask you sensitive issues and to normalize that. I'm asking you things because they are very important to understanding you as a person and to understanding your medical condition or your child's medical condition. I think predictability is something that's often been lacking in lacking in an individual who's traumatized in their lives. And so I think making a point to have your visits be predictable and indicate that you will be asking them things that maybe other doctors haven't in the past. I think Joyce just gave me a fourth P for my framework. It's the great thing about having these types of conversations with colleagues is that we are constantly kind of growing and learning and challenging each other. I've said it's not a checklist, but I also don't think it's a a piece doing trauma-informed care isn't something where you do one training and you go, oh, okay, I know how to do this and I'm done. It really is a constant quality improvement project um, to think on a regular basis about how can we better serve our patients and how can we meet their needs, acknowledging the experiences that they are likely to have come into our office experiencing. I, I think about the patient who 
so we often in my clinic will will kind of debrief when we've had a really difficult patient encounter. And those are really key learning experiences around trauma because obviously the way we were doing things wasn't necessarily working for that family or for that child. And so how can we think about what do we need to do next time, right? To do better. What what pieces did we not consider that we need to consider going forward for that particular family? Um, and that that I think is one of the really great things about, about trauma-informed care um, is that it, it allows you to continually kind of adjust and improve and and work towards meeting those patient goals. I agree. And I think the other mindset that is important is to keep that trauma focused always in the differential diagnosis. So when somebody would come to me because with a question of do they have ADHD, we'll always um, know any developmental pediatrician has in their mindset, well, it could be a developmental disability of a different sort, or it could be that they have a developmental delay. It could be that they have autism. It could be anxiety, but I think you always need to keep in mind, is there something going on in that environment that is causing whatever behavior has made someone concerned about hyperactivity? And that's a real common one, but you always need to have it in your differential. So after, so often, you know, after a whole bunch of tests, we think maybe this tummy ache isn't that kind of tummy ache. It's something else going on, something at home. I think if we can think of that sooner, we can address it sooner. I think you brought up an excellent point. You both have given some really great examples. Um, if I were someone coming into this journey, I'd be like, oh my gosh, there's so much. I had n- nothing, and now I have this whole arsenal of things. But where do I start? If I wanted to do something today or tomorrow to start, you know, implementing trauma-informed care, do I need to start, you know, establishing a relationship with a social worker? Or is there something a little bit more feasible that I can begin with? Let's start with you, Dr. Smith. So I'm going to give two things, and one is for your practice and one's for your patients. So the first one for your patients is, I think, one of the tools that we've implemented that is a really simple thing you can do, and that is working to identify at least one strength that you see in a patient or in a patient's family or caregiving system each time you see them. We know that families who are who are experiencing trauma are hearing lots of criticism, lots of um restraint by other systems, whether it's the school system because there's a child who's acting out, or whether it's that they're dealing with the child welfare system or even the criminal justice system potentially because of substance use disorder or other things like that. And so really helping to start build that rapport and that experience with a family by identifying at least one strength. And sometimes that's incredibly easy. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you have an encounter and you're like, I don't know what I'm going to compliment on this parent, you know, on this child caregiver interaction. But so sometimes it's as simple as that family who's typically late saying, you know what, you made it to clinic on time and we're so thankful that you prioritized your child's health today. Um, and just acknowledging that, right? It can be a really wide range of things. Um, and then the second thing that we haven't really touched on yet that I think can be really helpful, we are living in a time where healthcare workers are, we are exhausted and we are overburdened and we are coming, I, I keep wanting to say to the end of a pandemic, but I don't even know if I can say that yet, right? We are living through at least and practicing through a pandemic that has been incredibly hard on how we live our lives and how we practice our profession. And so one of the things that I can think can be really helpful for for clinicians who are wanting to start is thinking about how you would implement trauma-informed care with the people you work with. 
How can you check in with your staff members on a, a regular basis, whether that's daily in a huddle or whether that's weekly in a staff meeting and just kind of take the pulse of how's everybody doing? Are there things you're struggling with that you need our help and support in? Or can we meet you? Or is there a piece where you need some slack in this system right now because you're overburdened in another area? Um, and I think really recognizing that, that these principles can be extended to ourselves and our colleagues, um, and maybe even first to our, ourselves and our colleagues can be a really great place for a clinician to start. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Mock? I think those are great ideas, Dr. Smith. I would recommend going to the trainings or workshops or webinars, reading a book, reading what's out there available that would explain some of this. And I think there's a lot of material available if you just look for it. Obviously, we hope to have more things available through TMA for all the members, but reading and then implementing some of the things that um, Valerie talked about is a great way to start. Our future doctors, what are they being taught on this? You know, this is something where these concepts are still relatively new, and we know that, you know, it takes a long time for knowledge to get into the curriculum of medical schools and into the training of residencies and so forth. But fortunately, that cycle is faster than it used to be. So this type of information is being incorporated into medical schools and residency training, at least for primary care physicians. And so concepts like ACEs and trauma-informed care are now being taught. For those of us who are not in training or are out of training, you really have to go look for them yourselves. But fortunately, the next generation coming up is going to have some exposure before they actually hit the wards. That is good news. Um, definitely good news. Okay. Well, I know we could continue to have this conversation for another 30 minutes, but I have to cut us off. Um, this has been a great conversation. I really do appreciate both you, Dr. Smith and Dr. Mott for just joining me for this conversation. I know that we'll likely be putting out some materials tied to this. And on that note for the audience, thank you again for joining us. I hope that you'll stay tuned for the next podcast and stay safe and practice well. To claim CME for today's program, go to www.texmed.org forward slash C-M-E-T-O-G-O. Register for your podcast and follow the instructions to claim CME.